Well, we are on the 66th chapter of Isaiah. I will read through it again in sections as I did uh, the first time I was here. Um, but let me begin by speaking a little bit about this chapter and what we will encounter. Let me begin by saying that most cultures in the world, as you are probably aware of, have a belief in an afterlife. And so does ours. Um, McLean's Magazine recently did a report on this matter, and they reported that 81% of our American cousins next door to us believe there is a heaven, and in Canada, even though that number is substantially lower, that number still comes out somewhere around two-thirds of Canadians believe in some form of life after death. But when it came to a belief in hell, the number of Canadians, uh, that the number actually dropped to lower than one-third of us. And in fact, one study that I'm aware of in the UK found that more people actually believe in heaven in the UK, get this, than actually believe in God. Isn't that fascinating? Furthermore, as McLean's magazine reported it, most of us in this country confidently believe that the God who exists, whoever he or she or it might be, is non-judgmental. And so the expectation of going to heaven is an expectation of the majority of people, regardless of religious affiliation or regardless of lifestyle or moral choices. In fact, I think most of those Canadians that believe in heaven will say that heaven is by nature the default position and that if there is a hell, it only happens under the most untoward conditions. I mean, you know, Hitler and Stalin go there uh, and maybe a few others uh, and maybe the persons that we really don't like. And are, but, but as a matter of fact, the default position is heaven. Now, we come to the 66th chapter of Isaiah. And, of course, it was there in the 65th chapter as well. But when we come to the 66th chapter of Isaiah, I think we need to deal with that subject matter. Now, I say that because uh, most of you may think this as well, but I was taught throughout my seminary years that in the Old Testament there is precious little said about an afterlife or even an expectation of. If you know what, uh, what most rabbinical rabbis in Judaism will teach today is that Judaism has, is not opposed to life after death, but it's about the life here and now. And so I was taught in seminary that the Old Testament had precious little to say about it. There, of course, is this understanding that there is Sheol, which is a land of shadows, but most uh, saints had no idea what that land entailed. And to the most part, I think I simply adopted that without questioning. And I think I began to change my view, not as a result of reading some theological dissertation, but just by doing my regular morning devotions. As I, I don't know how you do your devotions, but I'll read through my Bible every year. And uh, so simply by repetition of reading through my Bible over and over again and starting to pay attention to things that I had not noticed before, I began to change my mind about all of this. So for instance, Psalm 37, Psalm of David, verse 18 says, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage, it says, will remain forever. And then you go forward, nine verses forward. In verse 27, it says, turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever, it says. And then two verses later, in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it. Hey, this is interesting. They dwell upon the land forever. So they inherit the land that they live on. 
In other words, their expectation is that the land that was promised to Abraham will be given to the righteous as an eternal inheritance. And then all the way down to verse 37 of that psalm where it says, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. Now it's interesting here because the future must relate to all those forever statements, you see. Mark the man who lives a blameless life. He has a future. What kind of a future? Just an earthly future? Well, it can't be because of all the forever statements found there in the psalm. So I would argue that Psalm 37 leads to an expectation of eternal life. Furthermore, you can read Psalm 73. And you, of course, those of you who know your psalms well, I mean, it's one of my favorite psalms, that psalm of Asaph. You'll remember he had almost lost his faith because he considered the prosperity of the wicked. You know, he said, they, they have seemingly have no cares in this life. They live to be an old age, their children surround them, and they die at a good old age, and they don't seem to be racked by disease. You know, they've got fatness under their eyes. I know in our day... Fatness under their eyes, we don't really think it's a great idea, but, you know, in that day, you, know, you were well cared for. And so they seem to die well cared for, not afflicted by all of the problems with the righteous. And you'll remember that Asaph said, because of this, I had, in his words, almost lost my footing, lost his faith. He said, until, until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. And when he enters into the sanctuary of the Lord, everything changes for him. Because, he says, I considered their final destiny until I went, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary and I discerned their end. Well, their end has to be an eternal end. It cannot mean an end in this life because Asaph has already observed that they live, many of them, to an old age and die in peace. When he said, I discern their end, he must mean that there is an end yet coming within the parameters of eternity in which the tables are turned. And so all I'm saying here at this juncture, I think it's wrong for us to read Isaiah 66 as simply a hope for the nationalistic restoration of Israel. No, no. This, as in chapter 65, is an eternal hope for all of the children of God. Well, it's not only Asaph and it's not only David that had this in mind. I'm going to also argue that it comes up in the very beginning of Genesis. And I love the phrase, he was gathered to his people. Now, I do know what the rabbis teach on this. They'll simply say that there was a communal grave. And so when Abraham was gathered to his people, he had already brought, bought the cave in Machpelah. And you'll remember that Sarah has already been buried there, and so what he's going to do is being gathered to his people. And so because people were buried in a communal cave, gathered to your people means no more than their burial rites, but that can't be the case from reading the text. And I, in Genesis 25, verse 8, it says, Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's verse 8. Then after he's gathered to his people, verse 9, we read, now that he's been gathered to his people, what happens next? He's buried. Huh. If he's been gathered to his people and then buried, the phrase gathered to his people cannot refer to the burial arrangements of Abraham, and neither can it refer to the burial arrangements of Jacob, 
uh, because he's gathered to his people. And then his sons make this, you know, journey back to Canaan and bury him there beside his fathers. But he's already been gathered to his people. And that's precisely in line with what Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 11. He must have understood these verses in precisely that way. For he says, And many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's your people. And I just hope that, you know, the young guy, Paul, you know, if you're around and I'm dying, remind me I'm about to be gathered to my people to sit at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom that is to come. And so being people, our people are the elect of God. Being gathered to them is to join with them at the great feasting at the table that Jesus talked about. And that, I think, is also the hope in the Old, in the Old Testament. Job 19, verse 26, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Psalm 23, verse 6, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for those who are saying David meant no more than that he would enter into the tabernacle. But he uses the word forever there. And the house of God must therefore mean an eternal dwelling place that David yet looks forward to. Daniel 12, verse 2 writes, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So while it is true that the Old Testament does not present us with the same kind of clarity that you would find in the New Testament regarding the life to come, yet nonetheless the expectation that there is eternal life lived in the presence of God is deeply rooted into the hearts of the people of faith. And so when we come to the 66th chapter of Isaiah, we need to enter into that chapter with that understanding, I think, at the very least. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because I think that as we continue to read through this text, we are going to read some very clear texts that speak about you know, a land-based hope. But you will remember there's something wonderful that happens. Let's see if I have the chapter. Yes, the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah is predicting, of course, the collapse of Jerusalem by the hands of the Babylonians. And by the time he writes chapter 32, now the Babylonians have surrounded the city. And Jeremiah is told by God to go to your uncle. His name is Hanamel. And you remember what he's told to do. Go buy Hanamel's field. I mean, that's ludicrous. You know, he weighs out silver and gold for Hanamel, his uncle, saying, I'm buying this field from you. Now, anyone looking at that would say that's ludicrous because the Babylonian boots are now standing on the very field that, ha that Jeremiah is going to be buying from his uncle. But the idea behind that is that when you read about these national hopes and when you read also about the land that is set before you, there is a hope that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The life to come in both the Old Testament and the New is a life that comes with sights and sounds and smells and tastes. It's a real land that is to come. I remember speaking with my father when he was lying on his deathbed. And at one point in time, he used to love to go to the mountains. I don't know if you have mountains here in Ontario, um, but, you know, you need to get a picture book and have a look. They really are beautiful. And I remember he would love to go to the mountains. And there in his deathbed, he said to me, you know, I would just, I would love to take one more trip in the mountains. And I said, Dad, we're going to have a trip in the mountains, you and I. 
And I said, and, he, and I remember him saying, oh, yes, we will. See, the thing that we ended up discussing is that we lose nothing in death. We lose nothing in death. And we gain all things. Well, the chapter that's before us, let me try to um, divide it for you so that you understand where we're, what we're reading. In the first six verses, there is a picture that is given us of a great divide which you've already seen as we've studied through Isaiah. There's two types of people, one hated by God and one loved by God. You're going to see that as we read verses 1 to 6. And then in verses 7 to 14, the picture changes, and the picture now is the great hope of the redeemed, and the great hope of the redeemed is seen in a picture of the new Jerusalem. We'll come to that and we'll describe it in more detail as we go. And then in chapters 15 to 24, which takes us right to the end of the book, a great destiny is being portrayed. And it's the great hope that we will look upon the glory of God in the life to come. So let's begin and, uh, with the first six verses, and uh, we're going to talk about the great divide. So follow with me, uh, Isaiah 66, beginning at verse 1, reading through to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, and he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, they did not listen. They did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, a sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. As far as the reading of God's word. Now, clearly these words are written to ancient Israel, and it divides the people of Israel, or the people of Judah in this case, into two camps. Those who will be redeemed and those who will be put to shame. And by the way, I began to mention that the last time that I spoke, but let me say this again, because those of us who read the Old Testament faithfully often wonder what to do with the words, the chosen of God. I mean, is Israel the chosen of God? And I'll give you my best understanding of how to understand those words. Yes, Israel is chosen of God, but we do know that the choosing of Israel is not necessarily a choosing unto election or a choosing unto salvation because the book that we have before us, and that's the book of Isaiah, on numerous occasions, Isaiah will tell us that only a remnant will be saved. Isaiah knows that, but so do the other prophets. And there's always an understanding that from the time of Moses when the majority would not enter the promised land and would not believe the promises of God, the majority of Israel is always unbelieving Israel. So how are they chosen, and what does their unique position in history actually mean? 
And I think the answer, as I mentioned last time I spoke, is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. I think Paul has given us a great favor with that one little line in which it says that Israel is a lesson book to the nations. And the lesson book to the nations is that God has used Israel and that the drama that gets played out in Israel's history is to be viewed by the nations, that is by us, to see how God will deal with every one of us. So what God does in Israel's life is exemplary of his actions with all of God's people. I hope you see that. And so we should read, therefore, what God is doing to Israel and apply this directly to our own situation. I mean, so much more could be said, but here's what we notice about Israel. The redeemed, we notice, are characterized in verse 2 by three things, and they were so well mentioned before already. Verse 2, all things, I'm, uh, yeah, I think I'm in verse 2, yes, I am in verse 2, yes, verse 2, and all these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be. Yes, in the second half of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, you've heard that over and over again. And, and we were so well brought to the front by Pastor Robbie. I mean, my heart was so moved by what he said. And I pray that God gives him a very long ministry. Um, but he was already pointing out these very factors that are here. Notice them again. This is the one to whom God delights in. First of all, the one who is humble. Now, so much can be said about humility. And Pastor Robbie already mentioned Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. I mean, the tax collector beat his breast and could hardly look up to heaven and could only pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee could only look down at the tax collector and say, I am so pleased that I am not like he is, in fact. And then he begins to mention his virtues. And I think that's the issue. It is when we mention our virtues before God that we fall out of grace, that we fall to the place of pride. And so let me speak very directly to each one of us on the issue of humility. However, you know, we've had all of us standing here. When did you come to know Christ? How long have you been in the Lord? But when you recount your conversion story, Please do not recount your conversion story in any other way than that which would give glory to God. Because I'm going to say that when we say, I made a decision, you sound like someone who did something morally superior to the one who did not make that decision. Could we remember a little doctrine that we should remember? It's called effectual calling, that God had mercy upon us that he called out our name. I like to say it this way, God entered into an election booth. It wasn't I that made the election. I didn't go to the voting booth and say, oh yeah, let's see, here I could vote. Yes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I could make an X there. I could say, you know, especially in our area where I live, um, Whistler every weekend. Sounds good to me. You know, hedonism, all of the other religious options that I have, anything that I can choose from. Some of us actually tell our conversion story is that I had all of those options, but I chose God. Shall we remember what Paul said of Lydia's conversion in the book of Philippians? The Lord opened her heart, and she gave heed to what the apostle was saying. The Lord opened your heart. God in His wonderful grace. People always say, what about free will? And here's what I want to say. In God's infinite grace, He looked at John Newfeld 42 years ago. I just had to count that up while I was thinking about how long have I been in Christ. 42 years ago. 
The Lord looked at John Newfeld, who hated him, who was a rebel against his causes, who was willing to wreck everything in his own life so that he can conduct rage against the God of heaven. And God looked at me and said, I will not respect your free will in this. I will change your heart from the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And when he changed my heart, I found delight in him. So when I tell my conversion story, I've got to say, God had mercy on me. Let us never take credit for what God has done. That those, that those who are characteristic of the people of God, the redeemed, the elect of the Lord, are characterized by their humility. That is, we will take no credit for what God has done. We will not own that which, which glory only goes to God. First point. Notice the second one that's already here. He's humble and contrite in spirit. See, I love that. Pastor Robbie opened up these doors. You know, come up and repent. You know what? If there's somebody here tomorrow and asks you again to come up and repent, do it again because I bet you've been sinning since then. See, we need to take note of this, that this brokenness of heart that will say of the Lord, your ways are right and my ways are wrong, are characteristic of the redeemed. When the call goes out, when the opportunity is given, when the grace is ours that we might come in repentance, at that point in time, the Lord says to us, come. And God has given a heart that would say, yes, I will be a person that will make keep short accounts with God. Because the shorter my accounts are with God, the, the, the less likely I am to allow a sin to fester inside me. This contrition in spirit, this brokenness in which we follow the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the third thing, and oh, we must not miss this third thing. See, this hum humility, this contrition, and then thirdly, to tremble at my word. There is something, isn't there, when the word of God is being publicly read. I mean, there ought to be something that, I, I mean, I... Don, when you just start by reading the word and you end by saying, um, you say, thanks be, this is the word of God, and we all say, thanks be to God. I mean, there has to be something that allows us to stop for a moment and just reflect on this. This is the word of the living God. See, this is why I believe that it is a mark of a church that fits within a biblical model, that the word of God is being faithfully declared doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I might surmise, or for that matter, anyone else. You see, there's something wonderful that happened in the Reformation, and that is there used to be a table, the sacramental table that stood in the center of all of the architecture in a church. And the Reformers took the, the table of the sacrament from the center and put a pulpit in the center and put on the pulpit a Bible and put the man behind the Bible so that it is the Bible that is declared. And that we know that we are doing that which God has called us to do when we meet together and when we tremble at the Word of God and when the Word says it, it doesn't start the discussion, it ends the discussion. This, in fact, is where the Word of God speaks. And so this is the portrait that Isaiah, at the end of his book, portrays of the redeemed of the Lord. This is what they look like. This is a snapshot of who they are. And then in contrast to that, as we've already seen, he now will portray the, the, the snapshot of those in Israel who are not the redeemed. 
And then we come to, see, that's what we see in verse 3. The one who slaughters an ox is like the one who kills a man. Now, if you take verse 3 and you contrast that with what we've already read in verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house you will build for me? What's Isaiah getting at? Well, he tells us in verse 3, there are so many in Israel that say, yes, but we are really right with God, not by the internal transformation of humility and contrition and trembling at the word, but we are rather right with the Lord that when we go through this temple ritual, see, it's all about the temple. It's not about God and His glory and my falling before Him. It's all about the temple, the one who slaughters an ox without having this humble heart, without being contrite. This one is like one who kills a man. You see, there's nothing new really in what Isaiah is saying. You can go back to the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 to 25, where Amos will say, let me read it to you. In verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. The word to Israel. Verse 22, even though you offer burnt offerings, I will not accept them. Will not, will not. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. See, we're out wherever humility and brokenness of spirit, and there is no trembling at the word of God. And I know they did not have a finished canon as we did, but they had a prophetic word that came to them, and they were called upon to submit to it. See, there's an application. We just need to all stop here. See, if we do church together, or we live out our Christian lives together, and we become arrogant and proud, but we've got the best worship service going in town. I mean, the band is hot, and the music is alive, and everyone's pretty well dancing in the aisles. God says, I hate your worship sets. I cannot, I, can't, I despise your communion services. I cannot abide your preaching of the word. And your baptismal services are an offense to me. You see, without the transformation of the heart, the religious paraphernalia all around it, and I'm going to say that's maybe not just paraphernalia, there are things which God has commanded that we should do. Even as in the Old Testament, He commanded these sacrifices to be done. Yet God cannot stand them when there is a non-broken heart that is not revived in His presence. We only anger Him further. That's the point. Size of one's ministry does not matter. And I'm not speaking out of envy. I've pastored very small churches and I've pastored one of the largest ones in the country. And size of a church, or it's spoken well of in the community, it does not matter. The only thing that matters is a heart that has been humbled in His presence. Now notice a couple of things. Notice as we go down to verse 5. Please notice this. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So there's this condemnation that the elect of the Lord are hearing against those who will not be humble. And then the word comes back to those who are, in fact, humble and contrite and who tremble at the word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you. Who are these people? Those are those who will not humble themselves in the presence of God and cast you out for my name's sake. So in Isaiah's time, the elect of the Lord were persecuted even by the folks in the temple. And that doesn't surprise us, does it? Wasn't it the folks in the temple that persecuted our Lord and Savior? 
there's something about high religiosity, this value that gets placed in religious symbols that so captures the human heart and replaces it with a sovereign and only God. They have said, notice verse 5, they have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. You see, in other words, let's see you triumph and be happy, but you're not. You always seem to be at the bottom. In fact, that is what Asaph was talking about, wasn't it? I mean, I almost lost my faith because those who seem to be acting most godless seem to be prospering the most. God, how can you allow that to occur? See, that's what we're reading here. And then, um, but they, look at the last part of verse 5. They shall be put to shame. Now to verse 6. And then here's how they're going to be put to shame. There's a sound of an uproar in the city. He can hear it already. It's as if uh, Isaiah is standing at the city walls of Jerusalem and he's got his ear pressed to it and he says, I'm hearing an uproar, a clamoring. It's still in the future, but a roar is beginning to happen. What is that roar? It's a sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies in the very place where they thought they would worship me in that very place, God comes and visits those whom he calls his enemies and visits them with wrath. So that's the end of the first section of chapter 66. It's to help us see the great divide between the elect and those who are not elect so that we would never fall into the trap of allowing religious externals to become the focus of our spiritual life. But the life that's, that's in prayer, the pastor that would begin his prayer by falling on his knees, not by an act to get your attention, but because that's what he does. See, that's, that's the one who trembles at his word. Okay, now we come to the second section of Isaiah, chapter 66, and that's in verse 7 to 14. Now, a word is given to the elect to have great hope. It may be that you're being persecuted now. Have great hope. Here are the words of the Lord, verses 7 to 14. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her, who, her being Jerusalem, like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and be bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, that, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. You can see now why I spent so much time on the eternal hope that's found in the Old Testament. You know, twice in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, verse 12, and then in chapter 21, verse 2, John sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God to the earth, and we are told with that, the dwelling place of God is with men. 
The history of Jerusalem is an interesting history. I remember the first time that my wife and I, Kathy and I, we were on sabbatical and we had never been to Israel at that time, and we were making our first trip. We were joining a tour company, and uh, we were going to do a lot of hiking, so I remember we bought hiking boots and we started hiking through our neighborhood and up and down hills, and we said, look, there are a lot of hills in Jerusalem, got to do that. So, you know, we were getting ourselves in fit and in shape as, as, as we could. And then I made a suggestion to her. I was actually me. I was that spiritual to do it. I said, you know, when we're doing this, we should sing some of the songs of Zion. So he said, what do we know? So, well, the easy one we all know, we're marching, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion. So we actually sang that walking through our neighborhood uh, together as we, as we were preparing for this, man, this trip. And then we, then we learned another one. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. God, whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile on all thy foes. Wow, that fills one's heart with joy. And you know, I remember when both of us first saw Jerusalem for the first time. You're usually taken to Mount Scopus. And as you stand on Mount Scopus, you see the city. And I remember because we held hands together and we just started crying and weeping and saying, yeah, Jerusalem, the city of God, the center of the whole earth, the joy of the whole earth, and here we stand together. And of course, it wasn't very long afterwards that we walked into the city, and, and we were hardly in the city, and we saw an old lady had her purse stolen, and they were running down the street, and we saw the hawkers of wares, and we, of course, know the history of Israel and of Jerusalem. The brokenness of the city became so apparent. But here in a city that would soon be surrounded by the Babylonians. Isaiah, as Dr. Carson has already pointed out, God sees far be, uh, Isaiah sees far beyond that, but Isaiah also continues to always have this capti captivity of the city in view. In terms of the captivity of the city, he sees beyond that and sees a new Jerusalem, one that is not like the one that's presently there. There's hope given. Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem is like a pregnant woman. She is pregnant with a new nation, he says. And the, the pregnancy and the birth is going to happen so rapidly so suddenly will it tumble upon you. In one moment, a new nation is about to be born, says Isaiah. Now, what's he talking about? What does the prophet have in mind? Kelvin thought of it this way. He said, and I'm quoting him, everything from the return, from the exile, to the final establishment of Christ's kingdom is in view. So from Kelvin's view, and if Kelvin is right, then verse 8 must refer to the return of the exile under Cyrus the Great of Persia, then the rebuilding of the temple, then of course the grandest moment in Israel's history, or in Jerusalem's history I should say, and that is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes marching as the King of Glory into that city. Of course the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell in that city. We wait for the day that the Messiah returns. All of these kind of things must be taken up in that one kind of prefigurement that we find in verse 8. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Kelvin said, everything from the return of the exile to the final establishment of the kingdom is in view right here. Well, perhaps. And far be it from me to always take note or issue with a person who knows more than I do. But look at verse 12. And I find myself puzzling around this verse. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations, 
These are the Gentile nations, like an overflowing stream. In other words, the nations are flowing into Jerusalem. There's no stop and an end to them. So great is this company. And the nations never poured into Jerusalem when the exiles returned. No, no, this must refer to something much greater and grander than that. I think there is something about the eternal people of God pouring into the new Jerusalem made up of Jews and Gentiles form a great promise for the city of God. Now notice that promise. Look again at verse 9. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? In other words, shall I make promises of a new heaven and a new earth? Of a Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God for the elect like a bride prepared for her husband? Shall I make all of those promises and not bring... Shall this promise book be pregnant with the promises of God? And shall nothing happen in the end? Of course not, says Isaiah. And then look at verses 10 and 11. And some folks take this metaphorically. I, I, again, we're allowed some difference between us here. But let me read it as I see it. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that is, over her present condition, that you may nurse and be satisfied from Jerusalem's consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her, from Jerusalem's glorious abundance. And so somehow we are promised this marvelous thing, that Jerusalem is going to be made new. And then we come to the last section. So we've had the first section of Isaiah, and I'm bringing everything to a climax to the end. And, and the last section of Isaiah is going to be so wonderful because it will bring the whole book together, as you will. And it perhaps will bring together our discussion of, of revival at the same time. The first six verses, you'll remember that we saw this, this, this distinction made between the elect and those who are damned. And then the, the next uh, section from verse 15 is this glorious picture that Jerusalem will be made new, that old order of things will pass away, and that something beautiful and new will happen. And now comes this last picture of the great and true and the glorious picture of God. And I think what Isaiah has in mind for us in these last verses is not so much that we concentrate on the glory of heaven, but on the glory of God. So watch now. I'm going to break this last section into three sections. I know, I know. I'm a preacher. I can't help it. Everything falls into my hands in three points. Everywhere I look. It's, it's a mark of God. It's like the Trinity. Everything is in three points. But nonetheless, in three sections here, 15 to 17. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Now watch verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens. Yeah, yeah, you've just heard about the gardens being discussed. Following one into the midst, eating pig's flesh. What's the pig's flesh? Well, you remember in verses 3 and verse 4, it's the individual who simply does the sacrificial ritual without falling in brokenness before the Lord God. All that sacrifice to God, all that singing and lifting up of hands and worshiping and praising and, and doing all of the religious worship. This is like pig's flesh and the abomination in mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. 
There is a time coming where judgment will fall. It is coming at the end of the age. When the new Jerusalem will be revealed, will that time also be the time when God will judge the damned? Asaph who said, oh God, how can this go on? So many complaints are found in, even in Job and in other places where complaints are found. How can the wicked continue to prosper? The answer is eternally they do not. You look, says David, at, I think it's Psalm 32. You look at, says David, you ought to fret not yourself because of evildoers. Fret not yourself. Because you look at the one who is so imposing and you look at his place and in a little while he is no more. She is no more. They are suddenly vanished. And he doesn't mean here death. He means the eternal death that yet awaits the damnation of God. The Lord will come with, whirl, with a whirlwind, with anger and fury and flames of fire. And he brings into judgment, a judgment which is the most awful thing that can ever, um, that can ever reach the ears of the human race. And if I could just stop here for a moment. And I'm going to say, because we're gonna, I'm going to come back to that. But the picture ought to terrify us. When Isaiah said, I live among a people of unclean lips. When I fly home, I'll go home again to my next door neighbors who are such wonderful people. But who do not know Christ. And that there is no salvation outside of Christ. You've got to tremble at the word. You've got to be broken in spirit because of the sins against almighty God. There is a great day of judgment waiting. It's hard to put one's head on the pillow knowing that they sleep also at night just one door over from me and have not yet known Christ. If this doesn't move you, oh my. We live in a land of unclean lips and our eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. I tell you, brothers and sisters, I spoke to a pastor just the other day a good pastor. His church is bursting at the seams. It's a tiny little house church. I mean, I've been there and your shoulder is up against the wall and the roof goes like this, but they're jammed. And they had an opportunity to buy uh, another church building because a united church was, going, uh, was, was, was collapsing. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. United churches apparently are going out of business all over the country and leaving behind them church buildings. I've prayed to the Lord. I've said, oh God, if the real estate developers get them, it'll never go back to be used for the glory of God. I plead with you that you would open the hearts and minds of church planters and entrepreneurs and people who have the wherewithal to buy those buildings and let them be opened again for the glory of God. I, I pray for that all the time because there is a huge change happening. And I know that there are a number of liberal churches that have said we'll never sell to an evangelical church. But I once met, you know, I don't know, she was maybe this high, a Chinese woman. But in fact, she was about in her mid-50s. And when I, the time I got to know her, after a while, I began to look up at her. This was a woman who was walking by a church building that was for sale. Downtown Vancouver, if you could imagine how high the property values are. And she walked by there, she saw the for sale sign, and, 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 and she said, oh God, at one point in time, Jesus was honored and worshipped in this place. And now, his name will never be heard here again. And she said, something entered in my heart. She said, I walked out of the real estate uh, 
the, the real estate office, and I pulled out my paycheck and uh, my checkbook, and I just signed a check, and I gave it to him and bought it on the spot, and then I went home and I told my husband. <laughs> man, I liked her. Oh, man, I liked her. And she said, now you need to pray with me because I'm looking for someone who's got this fire of the Holy Spirit in him because there needs to be a church birth in this building. At any rate, I'm an old man, so I get digressing, right? So I, I got to tell you, man, um, the church that I spoke of the other day had the opportunity to make that kind of a purchase, and they decided they love the size of their church, and they all have access to their pastor. And if we get bigger, I mean, it's going to change who we are. I mean, the idea that we could not weep before the Lord, as Isaiah said. I live in a city of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. What does it cost me today? But I will not be satisfied until every man, woman, and child in this country has an ability to hear the name of Jesus and has a decision to make about what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. See, that's what must burn in our hearts. And when we read a text like this, I can't imagine us rubbing our heads with glee, reading verses 15 to, or our hands with glee, reading verses 15 to 17, and simply saying, well, finally they're going to get theirs. I think there's always a tear in our eyes, but let's continue to read. Verse 18, I'm reading now to the end of verse 21. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Wow, that's a time. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign. Now notice that. I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish and Pol and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Now, notice very quickly, I'll go quickly, the word survivors, do you see that word in verse 19? Notice it there. Those among Israel who are the elect survive, and from their number a righteous group go out, they scatter. You notice to, the survivors go to the nations. Tarshish, uh, that probably Spain. It goes to Africa, I think to the Caucasus. Javan is probably Turkey. The coastlands far away must mean to the very ends of the earth. It sounds very much like Jesus' description to the twelve. You see, what is Isaiah referring to? And I have to say, with my New Testament in hand, he must be referring to an event in the future in which the redeemed of the Lord, this remnant that he has spoken of, will be sent out to all of the world, to the whole earth. Matthew 24, verse 14, and the gospel would be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. By the way, if you want me to get on my, my, my apocalyptic high horse and... Um, I just delight that Don is sitting here because there's nothing he can do right now. We could sit here and listen. He can correct me later. The only sign that I know of the coming of the Lord 
has nothing to do with four blood moons or whether it's Shemitah or whatever other nonsense is going on today. The only sign that I know is that this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth as a sign to all nations. And I see Isaiah saying something like that. You know, I, I see him seeing there's going to be a sign among them. Look again at verse 19. I will set a sign among them. Now, I can't help but read that and say, I don't know what that sign is, but I think I know. The sign is the sign of the cross that he sets among them. He sets among the Jewish people, and from the Jewish people, from this remnant among the Jews, in the form of the apostles, a church is birthed. And it's not satisfied until that church begins to spill out into Antioch. And then from beyond Antioch, all the way through Asia Minor, and then into Europe, and then down into Africa, and then even into Asia, and I'm sorry, and even into, into India itself, if, if, if tradition is right, that, that Thomas himself was martyred in India. And since the Indian church does say that, you've got to believe that in that first century, the gospel spread so widely and so rapidly, it is a marvel to behold. And all of this in preparation for this great ungathering that Isaiah has already spoken of when all the nations together who have been, th this, this group that goes out to the nations, then the nations will be gathered together and they will march as Kathy and I marched to that city. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion from the nations of the earth with tongues you have never heard of who sing the songs of Zion in their own language and begin to march towards that holy cities. And they shall come from afar, chariots and litters, mules, drums. However they come, they come. <laughs> and then notice verses 22 to 24, and this so beautifully puts it all together. As for the new heavens and the new earth that I make, that I shall make, as for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Don't you wish Isaiah would have ended it on an up note? I mean, doesn't he? If you were there when you've tapped him, you see, we like really happy endings, and this is, we all the redeemed go out and view the, the bodies of the men who have rebelled, and their worms shall not die. In some fashion, they go on living. Their fire is never quenched. The torment never ends. And they are an abhorrence. And we go out and look on them. Have we not triumphed? And you said, didn't you just say we should never rub our hands in glee? And yet this seems to be the rubbing our hands in glee. I did a series on heaven not long ago on the radio. Two-week series. And, and as I was trying to put the last one together, I decided to go out and phone people and talk to people in the office and everyone else that was near at hand. And I said, tell me what you're going to miss most when you die. Because I wanted to make the point that when we finally arrive in the new heaven and the new earth, we spend so much talking about what that's going to look like, we don't have time. I wanted to say, what do you think that you're going to miss here? Because I wanted to correct all of those faulty longings so that we would long for nothing more than the new Jerusalem and to gaze on the glory of God. 
And the one thing that kept coming up is that people would say with tears in their eyes, I'm going to miss those loved ones who have never known Christ. And I don't know how I'll ever be able to stop weeping. It's the word that I heard over and over again. And I bet if I did that here, that would be the word that would come as well. Because if you truly have an evangelical heart, and if God has given you love for lost and ruined humanity, and if you understand the doctrine of election properly, why should God have mercy on you or I at all? And we look around and we say, oh God, I cannot imagine the life to come. And then Isaiah ends his book saying, well, we're going to go over and we're going to look at those who are suffering endlessly. How can we rejoice in the damnation of the, or the devastation of the damned? Let me read to you what I wrote. It would seem that God's perfect justice, even in the damnation of the wicked, is a cause for the saints to overflow with praise and wonder and amazement and overwhelming love for a God who does all things for His glory and the greatness of His name as He expresses that, that is, His glory, in the rightful judgment of the damned. When we see Jesus in heaven, we will love above all other things the outpouring of God's glory and marvel that all of His attributes, even in the great damnation that will come upon many, we will see the glory and the greatness and the power and the loveliness of all that He does and we will long for no greater thing in all of eternity than that the holiness of God should shine in splendor. And if there's anything that revival does, that becomes the echo chamber of our heart. That I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That I would see Him here in the land of the living and in the land to come. And that I would see His glory and His grace as expressed in the apex of His glory, which is the cross. But even His glory expressed in the rightful damnation of the wicked. May the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I have no greater desire than that God should be glorified, that much should be made of Him, that all of His virtues would be exemplified and seen for all to see. May that be done, O Lord, in me. And that's the cause for, that is the call for revival. At this moment in time, I find that little glimmer in my heart. That's why I came up here to repent. Because it's not strong enough. And I say, oh Lord, would you create in me a greater hunger for your glory. I spoke to one brother here who started to tell me about his prayer life in which he said, I started to ask God to take away all the delight and all other things so my delight only in Christ. And he said, I went through about, you know, about six or eight weeks where I couldn't think I could have loved Christ as much. He said, could you help me to even love him more? And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, I don't think I have what you have. And the desire for revival is to say, I would see nothing but the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ is all that I want. Strip away everything else from me. Take from me everything that I love, but do not take this from me, O God, for I live for this alone. And O Heavenly Father, I pray. Let's stand together and pray. I know that our brother John Mahaffey will come up after this. But Heavenly Father, as we stand to our feet, we have been to an altar and now we stand to our feet.
And when we read of Isaiah saying, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of glory. How is it that some of us could have stood in my place to have known you for 42 years and yet to say to you, Lord, I know so little of your glory, but I want to know so much of your glory and I renounce the sin that still clings to me, Lord, that I would love no greater thing than the glory of God and that I would treat as hateful that in my life that distracts me from that which finds in you the only ocean of joy. Take it from me, O Lord God, I ask. Take from me pleasure in earthly things so that I might find my pleasure in you. Heavenly Father, humble my heart afresh, and if my heart needs to be humbled this day but 100 more times, I would gladly be humbled so that I might gaze on the beauty of the Lord and find an ocean of joy as I gaze upon God. Thank you, O Lord, that as the heart pants after streams of water, so my soul pants after you, O living God. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who hardly know what that is. Awaken them, O God. Send your Spirit among us. Heavenly Father, drive from us those things which would compete with the glory of God. And may we, O Heavenly Father, be known as the people who know no greater joy than that Christ, that Christ, the, the blessed Son of God, was sacrificed for me. And that I have been sacrificed with him and that my life is hid in him. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I will yet behold my Savior. In Jesus' strong name and for his sake, send a revival among us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated.